From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Okay, well, last week you mentioned Pearl, the new um, Pixar Spark short. So I finally watched it. And uh, and so I, I found it entertaining. It's it's not terribly short. It's yeah. about what eight and a half minutes or so. Oh yeah. Oh no, so, it, it's bulky. It's entertaining. It's, yeah, it's on the long end of a, a short. So, but yes, most yeah. definitely. So what what are your thoughts on it? I loved it, particularly the animation. Um, I love I, I love the fact that the I, I can't remember the exact description that people from Pixar used for it, but basically all the human characters are running in like a, essentially a smooth animation. And then it's mm-hmm. uh, Pearl, the actual, um, the, the ball of uh, yarn is essentially like running almost closer to like the, the animation out of um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So it just mm-hmm. it that right there, the whole reason they did that was was to definitely draw a parallel in between the two, and so that like right there from the start, just just how they decided to animate it to begin with, like that that sets up the entire thing. And and before I read that, you know, it it jumped out immediately to me in in a very stark way, like okay, this is really different and. The fact that it had to do with the entire meaning of the short just stood out a lot. And I feel like they took chances with it. And, you know, as much as I would like to see this uh, debut theatrically in a way, if if we just get this these new shorts through Pixar, uh, through YouTube or any other form that it can be released, then then I'm all for it. I, I, I'd love to see the, the company continue taking chances and. And really expanding on what they already do on such a on, on the big stage that they already have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this uh, this has been presented theatrically, but only at the El Capitan, where they've been running these Pixar oh. shorts with their special features. Like I think Pearl ran with the uh, um, anniversary celebration of the Little Mermaid. At El Capitan. So this is the first one that was released to um, YouTube. And this is, you know, it's Pearl is the first short out of Pixar um, Spark Shorts program. And it is, it's supposed to, um, like you were saying, it's supposed to elevate new stories from the studio's animation team and experiment with new techniques. I thought the, you know, I've been noticing lately that Pixar's films definitely have messages to them. 
you know, their shorts and even yeah, like Incredibles yeah. too about the dad. And I, some of these messages, I think, you know, they would have been um, groundbreaking maybe 20 years ago. <laughs> maybe not as necessarily um, fresh and, and yeah. you know, as today. You know, like, like, you know, Pearl deals with women's equality in the workplace. And I know maybe because I worked in education all my life, most of my bosses were women. And most of my yeah. colleagues were women. So to me, this was nothing... I don't know, earth shattering or yeah, well, anything I, to me. And I, and I agree with that. I think definitely in the entertainment industry, it was kind of a wake up call for a lot of people in terms of, uh, women and being on a different playing field, uh, because we, we obviously know what's been happening in the media industry in the past, uh, year, mm-hmm. two years with all of that. But, uh, yeah, I. It's kind of funny you mentioned that. There's another podcast I listen to. It's a it's a comedy one um, about. Well, the one I listen to isn't a comedy one. Sorry, it's a uh, it's with a comedian on it, and then a movie critic called Unspooled, and they're kind of going through uh, the the movies of 2018 right now. Normally, they just cover the AFI Top 100, but they were talking about Incredibles too, and how like while it does have that meaning behind it, the whole, like, the mom stepping up and taking over, like, back in the 80s, that would have been insanely groundbreaking for that story to kind mm-hmm. of unfold. But in today, it is it is a statement. It's just not as strong as it could be before. So it's kind of funny that you got the exact, um, kind of the exact same impression on that because it didn't dawn on me right away. And I don't think it dawned on a lot of yeah. people. But... Uh, you know, sometimes those messages are lost when it's just a straight through entertaining movie. But I'm surprised yeah, I didn't realize and, and that. the background of... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Well, no. And the background of this on Pearl is that it was the women behind it. They were telling their story. This is all metaphor for when they were breaking into animation and it was a, a men's field. And so they, you know, it was unusual for a woman to be in that field. So it's sort of telling their story of how uh, women broke into the animation field and now, um, you know, have much more of a presence in there than they did a while back. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was just about to say. I'm glad you did the research. I just watched it. Um, So I didn't know that it debuted at El Cap in front of Little Mermaid. And I didn't know that they came out and actually talked about the story. One of my... Uh, one of my friends, who's I've mentioned here before, uh, she had some involvement on it. So that's that's like the main way I found out about it first. And but I didn't do any extra research on it. So thank you for actually uh, being thorough. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and the other thing that hit me is, uh, you know, this comes from Pixar, who just you know, John Lasseter left, and, and you know. Under the and many people said he had his own sort of um, you know boys club there at Pixar and women found it very difficult to move up in the ranks and this is what's what's been alleged and so part of me thought is this also a message that you know there there a new there's a new day at Pixar as well is that it's, yeah is, I, i'm just wondering is there an underlying message there or is it just a coincidence 
I think it's a message. So I, I believe that at mm-hmm. least. I it could be a coincidence, but I think I think all signs are pointing to it being a message, in my opinion. Yeah, and then of course uh, after you watch it, there is uh, you know there's a little plug for um, Disney Plus, Disney streaming service, and a link to where you can uh, you know uh, sign up to get email alerts as to um, the progress of Disney Plus. Yeah, yeah. and we're all waiting com- on it. There's a yeah, yeah, really. It seems to be getting pushed back a little. <laughs> uh, there's some up. There's a couple more upcoming um, Pixar Spark shorts. One's going to be a robot love story, um, Smash and Grab, and I think that's supposed to come out next week on YouTube. And then there's an, an then there's another one called Kit Bull that is about an unlikely friendship between a kitten and a pit bull. So I look nice. forward to yeah. those as well. Yeah. It's uh, more animation, the better. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just to let folks know, and you mentioned this on last week's show about Pearl, this may not, that this is definitely for maybe older teens and adults. Um, it's definitely not meant for the little ones. Uh, there's even some language in there that parents might um, maybe not want their youngsters to hear. Exactly. So, you know, it's. So uh, just be aware of that. Yeah, and I don't think it's one of those things that, you know, it's. It's not something that you have to go out of your way and and show your child. I, of course, mm-hmm. I'm a person without a child, so I can't really speak on that behalf. But in my opinion, it's not something that's like so groundbreaking that you need to sit your kid down and explain the language if they've never really heard it before and all that just to show them. It's, it's something they'll be able to appreciate when they're at an age where uh, they should be watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So okay, and Craig, you have an announcement about uh, you had teased it a while back about our Q and A episodes. Yeah, tell listeners about that. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, uh, we mentioned a little while back that we were going to be doing another question and answer episode coming up here. Well, breaking it down into two, kind of like we have been doing, just because we get we get just a juggernaut load full of questions. Uh, so we'll most likely break it down like we, we have in the past doing theme parks for one episode and then uh, our miscellaneous Walt Disney, Disney history and the other one. Uh, but uh, yeah, we are, we are starting to take questions actually as of earlier this week and you can find the, the place to ask questions over on the Dis Unplugged Facebook page facebook.com slash disunplugged there is a thread on there that you are able to to ask away you can ask whatever you want there are no limits we only ask two things of you and that is that you don't ask any questions that can just simply be answered with either a yes or no because obviously we're trying to we're trying to get a little bit into it, so if you just keep it very basic, then it's very, very difficult to 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 make it a little bit more engaging. And then on top of that, too, uh, if if you try to ask us what we would think Walt would think of this or that or the other, we just can't answer it because we have absolutely no idea, and we never will. And uh, unless Walt decides to evaporate or not i guess i guess not evaporate apparate in front of us as a ghost of some sort and answer questions for our podcast uh, we will never know 
what he he thought of some stuff. So we don't like to answer those ones. So uh, again, you can find that thread already at facebook.com slash disunplugged. I just opened it up as of recording it about uh, 15 minutes ago, and we already have close to 20 questions on it. So uh, by the time it's released, uh, this episode's released, and, and we brought the word out even further. It's We're going to have a lot of questions in there, but uh, we'll be taking time to go through and look at them all, and uh, we're looking at a time period in early March that we're going to stop taking questions completely, so that way uh, that way, Michael can kind of go through with a fine-tooth comb and really pick which ones we want to discuss in further. So, uh, it's there for you. Ask away. Okay, great. Yeah, looking forward to that. Those are always fun episodes. They are. So, all right. All right. And uh, I want to let our listeners know about a fun meetup that I'll be part of at the Walt Disney Family Museum on Sunday, March 3rd. I will be joining the folks, uh, Mark, Hurry, and Jen from the Leaving Today podcast. I was a guest on that show last year. And, and, Disney historian and author of Eat Like Walt, Marcy um, Smothers. And she was, of course, on the show, so you know how much fun she is. And um, we're going to meet in front of the museum at 1030 in the morning. And then Marcy and I, apparently, are going to be leading a tour of the museum beginning at 11 a.m. But I got to tell you, Marcy is so dynamic and she is just so bubbly. I think she's going to take the lead on the tour because I'm just going (laughs) to fill in when I can because she is a delight. But if you would like to, you know, join me for at the and walk through with me and um the gang from leaving today podcast and marcy join us at the museum on sunday march 3rd in san francisco's presidio um we would like folks to meet there at 10 30 in the morning in front of the museum and then we'll begin the tour around 11 a.m and we'll finish around yeah two or three in the afternoon most likely but of course you can leave anytime you want um and um you will of course have to pay for admission you know, to the uh, museum. But I hope that um, I'll see you there. If you have Connecting with Walt shirts, um, please be sure to wear them. If you don't have them, you can always buy them on Tee Public. Craig always has a link in our show notes for our merchandise. Mm-hmm. And, and they always have sales. So um, anyway, so I hope to see you there. That should be fun. Well, it, I think it will be. For those of us who appreciate the legacy of Walt Disney, we were saddened to hear about the passing of Walt's son-in-law, Ron Miller, on Saturday, February 9th, 2019, of congestive heart failure at the age of 85. Now, Ron Miller was the husband of Walt Disney's oldest daughter, Diane. He was hired by Walt in 1954 as a liaison between WED Enterprises and Disneyland. And Ron eventually became president of Walt Disney Productions in 1978 and CEO in 1983. And he may be best known for launching the Touchstone label, which allowed the studio to produce and release more adult-themed films without tarnishing the family-friendly Disney brand. 
He also oversaw the establishment of the Disney Channel, the opening of Epcot Center in Tokyo Disneyland, experimented in early computer animation, funded Tim Burton's stop-action films Vincent and Frankenweenie, and acquired the film rights leading to the production of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. In this episode, we're going to talk about the life and legacy of Ron Miller. And I want to caution families that I will be using direct quotes to tell Ron's stories with language that you feel may not be suitable for um, our younger members of the Connecting with Walt family. And we know that many families listen to our stories together, but parents with younger children may want to pre-screen this episode before sharing it with youngsters. Now, and we're doing this just because, just so that you get the full, um, you, you know, feel of the personalities of the people and also yeah. of the emotions that they were going through at the time. Well, yeah, and I mean, we're also, we are a history podcast. We're not going to try to rewrite history and we can't, we, we can't just skirt around stuff. Uh, if it happened and it's... It's important based on the the period that it took place and and what was happening. Then, then we have to then we have, we have a duty to to kind of keep it how it was. So it's it's a good it's a good learning opportunity. Yes, it is. Um, now, Ronald William Miller was born in Los Angeles on April seventeenth, nineteen eighty three, and he graduated from Fremont High School and attended the University of Southern California on a football scholarship. His father worked at Goodyear and his mother at Hoffman Chocolates, and they lived just four blocks from Goodyear and the hangar where the blimp was docked. So Ron would talk about when he was a boy how they would uh, the blimp would bring in Santa Claus oh. and and the, the the children would be there and Santa would would you know alight from the blimp and distribute gifts to the children. Oh wow! I thought wow, Santa! Now that is a way to deliver gifts. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Ron said he had a very happy childhood. Can imagine now his boyhood dream was to play professional football and in the summer um and 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 then in the summer he wanted to play american league baseball so in his sophomore year of high school though ron broke his ankle sliding into second base which prevented him from playing football the following season then in the following summer he broke his wrist sliding into second base so i guess the lesson here is don't slide into second base um his football team performed well in Ron's senior year, and they won the Los Angeles City Championships, with Ron catching several important passes. So, in a recent interview with Janet Riley of the Knob Hill Gazette, Ron shared the story of how he earned his scholarship with USC. He said, I had a wonderful coach, Harry Ellison, who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. Harry was part of a recruiting team and asked me one day where I wanted to go to college. I said USC. So as I'm standing in front of him, he called a recruiter at USC and says, I got a kid here that you've met on a recruiting trip and he wants to go to your school. Ron Miller. And then there was a pause. Ron Miller. M-I-L-L-E-R. And he carried on a conversation for, for a while and said, look, I want you to give him a scholarship. 
You don't have any more scholarships left? Oh, well, that's too bad. So he talked a few more minutes and said, look, let's cut out all this crap. Ron Miller wants to go to SC, and if you're not going to give him a scholarship in five minutes, I'm going to make a call to UCLA. He's going to UCLA, and someday he's going to beat your ass. And that was it. That's they gave me story. a scholarship to SC. Isn't that <laughs> terrific? That, that is. Um, I, yeah. I, gosh, I really wanted to go to USC back in the day. I wish I could have had that deal set up, but uh, it just would not yeah. have applied to me at all. Yeah, you wanted to be a football hero? Uh, well, I mean, I wanted to go to the USC film school. I mean, there's only been a couple oh, okay. of important people who, who came through there. So <laughs> uh, it's it, it was what my dream was. And then uh, the harsh reality set in that I was from Pennsylvania, and it would cost way too much money to go to USC. So I gave up those dreams very quickly. But I'm glad it worked out uh, for Ron. But look where you are now. I know. I'm here with all y'all. Now, yeah. Now, Ron met Diane Disney on a blind date when they were both in college. Ron played left end and his best friend played right end. And his best friend's girlfriend's roommate was Diane Disney. So a blind date between Ron and Diane was arranged after USC played UC Berkeley. It didn't go well. Ron, Ron said it was a, he played a good game, but he was tired after the game and just wanted to go to sleep. So the four of them went to a bar. Well, Ron said it was a dive. And Ron had a bourbon to try and feel just more in the mood for, for being on a date. But it, it didn't work. And he noticed that Diane was looking at her girlfriend and making, you know, a square sign with her hand. And Ron decided... He just had to get out of there. So he he excused himself to go to the washroom, and then he just left for the hotel and went to sleep. Well, the next day on the train back to Los Angeles, he saw Diane on the same train. And so he apologized for leaving her at the bar the, the night before. And she accepted his apology, and they talked more, and they hit it off. And so they agreed they would go on a real first date on October 3rd, 1953. Now, he first met Walt Disney at Walt and Lillian's home on Christmas Day. Walt and Lillian were hosting a buffet and they invited all the family. And their meeting was brief, and Ron was surprised to see how ordinary Walt was, because Ron had imagined Walt would be like Jack Warner, you know, a typical Hollywood fast-talking studio mogul who dyes his hair when he's 75 and, you know, and always wants to be noticed, you know, the the kind of guy that, like, during, when, when he's at a baseball game, has to stand up in the crowd and make sure everybody sees him, you know, but, but Walt was very ordinary, and then he didn't see Walt and Lillian very often because Ron and Diane were each living away at school. So he would only see Walt when Diane was at home, you know, for the weekend. <clears throat> so one evening, three months into their courtship, Ron picked up Diane in his car after saying, you know, he went in and said, you know, hello to Walt and Lillian. And then um, Diane got into the car and said, huh. And Ron asked, what does huh mean? And Diane, she answered, guess what dad said to me tonight just before you got here? And Ron said, no, I'm not going to guess. What did he say? He said, when in the hell is that guy going to ask you to marry him? 
Now, <laughs> apparently, Walt and Lillian had been talking and decided that after the first couple of guys Diane had dated, that they didn't especially care for it. They liked Ron. So Ron's first thought was, holy Christ, she's proposing to me. <laughs> so, um, so, so Ron always thought that, in a way, Walt proposed. <laughs> so, I'd say anyway. that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Ron and Diane were married on May 9th, 1954. And Walt did have his little joke at the hotel reception in Santa Barbara. Ron was accustomed to wearing Bermuda shorts and no shoes, and Diane preferred wearing Levi's or slacks. And for the top of the wedding cake, the figure of the groom wore a football helmet, Bermuda shorts, and bare feet, and the figure of the bride was in Levi's. And and Ron said, you know, Walt just liked to have his little joke. <laughs> Now, whilst waiting to be drafted into the army, uh, Ron planned to take a job as a truck driver. And when Walt found out, he said to Ron, well, look, I've got this place down in Anaheim that I'm just starting to build. And maybe you can find a little job there somewhere until you get drafted. So Ron was hired as the sixth employee of Disneyland. Now, in, a, in an early interview, Ron said he was the third employee, but the Walt Disney Family Museum has always said that Ron was the sixth employee. So I'm going to go with what the Walt Disney Family Museum said, since I'm assuming they, they did the research. Anyway, so Ron would drive back and forth between the studio and Disneyland dropping off plans. And he saw um, Disneyland be transformed from an orange grove into a Magic Kingdom. And so after about five months, Ron was drafted into the Army. So he served in the Army for two years, and upon his return, he was drafted by the Los Angeles Rams. And Walt attended two of Ron's games. In one game, Ron got hit in the nose and was knocked unconscious. In the other, Ron was a blocker for Tank Younger, and instead of laying block for Tank, he tackled his own man and got his ribs caved in. So... Ron recounted his conversation with Walt after his first season with the Rams. After the season, Walt said to me, what are you going to do next year? Now, I said, they've asked me to come back. Now, at that time, Diane and I had two children. And Walt said, you know, I think that you really should consider the fact that I'm not going to father two children if you get your butt killed out there on the gridiron. <laughs> so, he, so he said... I'd like to offer you a job. So he got me into the Director's Guild, and then I became an assistant director, which sets all the background action and all that. Then I became a first assistant director, and then Walt made me an associate producer. Now, Ron believed that Walt thought Ron would be away from his family too much due to the travel that pro ballplayers have to do, and he wanted to see the family stay together. So for a brief time, Ron considered an acting career. 
1958, actor Clint Walker walked out of the popular Warner Brothers television western Cheyenne due to a dispute with the studio. And Bill Orr, who is Jack L. Warner's son-in-law, called in Miller to audition as Walker's replacement. And if you Google Clint Walker and you see him, because Cheyenne was in syndication reruns when I was a boy, so I enjoyed this show. I was in my cowboy phase. Um and you can see why they would have invited Ron Miller, because there, there's a strong resemblance. And anyway, they were impressed enough with Ron's audition to schedule a screen test. But Walt intervened, and he told Ron to forget acting, because he was grooming him for the position of producer. And Walt and, and Clint Walker finally resolved his differences with Warner Brothers and returned to the show in 1959, and Ron never really considered acting again. Now, Ron's first job was as, a, as an second assistant director with Old Yeller, and he eventually became first assistant director on The Swamp Fox and other Disney television shows. And he eventually started directing Walt in his lead-ins for the episodes. And Ron once said that was an ordeal. <laughs> so, I and, and there, there was in one of, yeah, I mean, just because you know there there was a tenseness because you know Ron had his idea of how he wanted things to go. Sometimes there was the way the script was written. There was the way Walt thought it should go, and as. As, as Ron tried to direct, if it wasn't what Walt wanted, Walt would start to get tense. And then if things got wrong, like if there was ambient noise and they had to keep refilming, you know, Walt had other things to do. Yeah. And it would delay things and Walt would just get more and more tense. And, and so, so it, it, that, you know, Ron, Ron did not enjoy that. Yeah. And just so. to give a little context uh, for people out there who aren't as familiar, a the first assistant director is basically the person who's going to be in charge of the day-to-day progress of what's happening uh, on the film, like keeping, making sure everything's on schedule, essentially. And then uh, the second assistant director is even the next step beyond that. So they have the, de- the daily schedule in place, but then they're going to be working on like, uh, the call sheets, making sure that everyone's there that's supposed to be, and uh, that again, everything is moving on schedule. So uh, it's mm-hmm. it, while it sounds ideal, like first assistant director and second assistant director, it's very, very much like actual grunt jobs. And I, I don't say that in a way. There's yeah. plenty of people in the industry out there who would I I would die to be a first or second assistant director, but in the grand scheme of things, it's, it, they're more like, uh, more like shift managers in a way. So, uh, it, mm-hmm. he started not at the bottom, uh, closer to the top, but not on top right away. No. Yeah. He did start at the bottom and, and when they've done, uh, at the Walt Disney Family Museum and they've done retrospectives on some of the shows like Old Yeller, Tom Kirk and all that, a lot, a lot of the things that Ron did was, was making sure like the, the child actors were where they needed to be. Yeah. Even yeah. if it meant going to their homes and picking them up and driving them there. And then there was a whole one thing over horses and Ron trying to gather the horses up. And um, and for the Mouseketeers, he was transporting them between um, 
you know, the stage and uh, what they called the Little Red Schoolhouse, which was the trailer where they had to do their schoolwork, you know, with the teacher, you know, by law every day. And and so, so, yeah, there was a lot of shuttling things and people around. Yeah, it's like on a Tuesday show, uh, Walt Disney World Edition podcast, when I get irritated with the world and I just yell at Rhino to start doing everything. He's like my assistant director. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, there, that puts it in perspective for us. Now, Walt was offered the job of being in charge of the pageantry for the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley. And we did an whole episode on that. And, you know, in Squaw Valley, California, which he happily accepted. So in 1959, Walt sent Ron Miller, Dick Nunes, and Tommy Walker from Disneyland to begin planning. And Ron said that took about four months. And and Ron talked about that at the museum and how they they had to, uh, you know, rent a home there. And, you know, so that at least the family could be there and coordinate everything. And like I said, go back into our archives and you'll um, hear me talk about that. But it's a really interesting episode. Now, when Ron returned, he became associate producer on several Disneyland television series, such as the Disneyland television show, Daniel Boone and Texas John Slaughter. And a second unit director was needed for the film Moon Pilot. And producer Bill Anderson and director Jimmy Nielsen are trying to determine who should um, who should be the second unit um, director. And, the, and Nielsen suggested Ron. It would require Ron going up to San Francisco and, and being in charge of filming the scenes that were required up there. So Ron agreed to do it. And then he got a call from Walt saying, God damn it, what what do you want to be a second unit director or a producer? <laughs> and so and um Ron replied, a producer. And Walt knew that Ron would be more valuable to him as a producer and it would be a um better career choice for Ron because you know, Ron looked back on it and said, you know, when you're a director, you can only do one thing. But as a producer, he could work on 11 or 12 things yep. at once. Very true. Yep. So, um, so, so, okay, what does a producer do, Craig? Everything. Um, it, but <laughs> they're not – so an actual film producer is going to be – I mean, you have the levels. So you have executive producer, associate producer, producer – uh, producers going to be pretty much involved in the day-to-day uh, happenings with it, but not uh, not on the same uh, in-depth side as the director. So, because a lot of the uh, a lot of the producer's role is going to be dealing on the money side of things too, keeping stuff on budget and such. So, uh, a little bit more broader in the scope of what's happening while working with a director on the a lot of the details on what's happening, but uh, not not to the extent like the executive producer is, you know, that's that's the high money and high responsibility. If, if Steven Spielberg executive produces something and it's garbage, he's not getting blamed for it, essentially, kind of in that way. He, he may have fronted a lot of the money pulled in the funding, but uh, his name's not attached onto it as closely as director or or like right away as a producer, but uh, and even then, that's not that's not always the case. But uh, yeah, it's it's kind of it's just 
a, it's I really hate saying it's like a, the helper of the director in a higher level, but I mean that's kind of it's like a right hand man that has more power, so so can help you when you get into tight spots. Mm-hmm. Okay, because that was certainly a big part of Ron's career was as a producer. So that that's good to know. Okay. Now, towards the end of his life, Ron said that Walt was more interested in Disney World and Epcot than in making motion pictures because it was something new. It was a new challenge. And it was becoming a struggle for Walt to find properties for feature films and television. Ron believed that if Walt had lived longer, he would have delegated the supervision of motion pictures and television to others and focused completely on Disney World and Epcot. Now, the first time Ron realized Walt was ill was the day of Walt's operation in November 1966. And on the Sunday before his surgery, Walt drove by Walt and Diane's home and watched Ron play football with a few of the neighborhood children. Then he drove himself to the hospital for his surgery on Monday. And Ron and Diane visited Walt frequently in the hospital, and it is there that Ron had one of his greatest memories of Walt. Ron was visiting Walt with Diane and Lillian, and Ron was meeting one of Walt's nurses for the first time. And Walt said, I want you to meet my son. And the nurse said, you mean son-in-law? And Walt insisted, no, my son. And Ron said that, it, it, it was the greatest thing that's ever been said to me. So I just thought that I thought that was very touching. Yeah, I did. Now, now, after Walt's passing, Ron continued to work in the film division as a co-producer and moved up to producer with the film Never a Dull Moment in 1968. And he went on to produce several films, including Tron, Pete's Dragon, Escape to Witch Mountain, and The Black Cauldron. He became president of Walt Disney Productions in 1978 and CEO in 1983. His overriding mission was to reinvigorate its film division, where he had spent most of his career as a producer and executive. So Ron was inspired to create Touchstone Pictures after years of seeing Walt's frustration over being limited to creating family-friendly G-rated films. Uh, for one day, Walt called Ron and said, I've got a film running tonight. Why don't you come on over? And the film was To Kill a Mockingbird. And when it was over, Walt said, damn, I wish I could make a film like that. So Ron finally decided the time had come for the studio to expand its film offerings. At the yearly shareholders meetings in Florida in front of 500 shareholders, Ron said, I have, as you probably know, developed and created a second label. This is the epitome of what we hope all our second label films will be like. They were then treated to a screening of Splash. Ron reported that only two out of the 500 felt there were some things that would stop them from telling their friends they should go see it. Now, under Ron's stewardship, the studio produced films that have gone on to be considered classics today. And I mentioned, you know, I mentioned um, Tron, you know, um, already. And, you know, of course, The Black Hole. But Tron didn't do well in the beginning, but has gone on to be an incredible cult classic. I mean, beyond the fact that right now there's a a hugely popular e-ticket ride out in Shanghai that's being reproduced out yes. in Walt Disney World and Magic Kingdom 
based off of a movie that like they even look at they look at the first tron and say okay it's cult the second one it did okay not great and then like but should we do a third one still so it's like it's it's that important to some people it's very important Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of course pete's dragon uh, i mean so many people that's one of their favorite films in their childhood and so much so it was remade into a live action film yeah you know, a, a couple of years ago. I love that film, and it has, it's one of my favorite, uh, you know, floats in the Main Street Electrical Parade. Yeah, I mean, I I have issues, obviously, with, with the movie. I It does not hold up as well as I, I wish it would. It's, it's actually very bad in a lot of places, but I, I love the basis of it. I mean, I love, I love Elliot, so. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and then there, there's there's some that are, are yeah, I love the Fox and the Hound. Me too. You know, I think that was the 25th um, animated film for them, and you know, and it holds up. It, it holds up well. Yeah, I so. and I I talked about this a little bit on our Walt Disney World edition show. A lot of the stuff that uh, Ron Miller had uh, in his wheelhouse is stuff that it's it's not always remembered very well uh in a in a nice way even but it's stuff that's very important to to a lot of people of that time so again going mm-hmm. with tron fox and the hound i like i it's, it's a running joke between kylie and i we'll start quoting lines from the movies and she'll start she'll start crying right away because you know it's not a happy film he uh, he had condor man under his belt, which is mm-hmm. like as cult as you can get, uh, even oh, more yeah. so I, than I Trump. I thought it was great. Yeah, and yeah. It, uh, and also Black Cauldron, uh, the Black Hole. I, I know we have thoughts on the Black Hole, but um, it, this man like ran rampant in terms of cult Disney movies from from that seventies uh, into the eighties time period, and. Uh, so so many good ones. Even back to his early days when he was he was co-producing on like that darn cat and the monkey's uncle and mm-hmm. and uh, Lieutenant Robinson Crusoe. I mean, just just incredible. Oh, yeah. And 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 then look at all the Don Knotts films that we love: Hot Lead and Cold Feet, yeah. the Apple Dumpling Gang series. You know, uh, you know that. We just we still laugh at yeah and you cat from outer space <laughs> exactly and and we're gonna get into some of the other stuff he did you already mentioned Touchstone though and so I mean it's, I I can't sit here and say everything that he touched with Touchstone but I don't think a lot of people give credit to what that was as a studio you mentioned Splash but. It, it continues on there with uh, some of the mm-hmm. earnest movies, Three Men and a Baby, Good Morning Vietnam, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dead Poet Society, Turner and Hooch, Pretty Woman, uh, The Rocketeer, mm-hmm. Cult, uh, Father of the Bride, Another Sister cult Act, classic, yeah, yeah. Like, and it keeps it keeps going on. Then Nightmare Before Christmas, mm-hmm. and we're not we're still in the nineties with that, and and yeah. Touchstone keeps going on and on with bigger and yeah. and bigger hits throughout there into the into the 2000s and um mm-hmm. even even stuff that you can kind of 
I, I believe they called it co-production at least at some point in time, but with uh, stuff like Lincoln and uh, and very recently um, Bridge of Spies and with mm-hmm. with Tom Hanks, like Touchstone is so so important in the film industry. Like you cannot you cannot put a value on how important it was, mm-hmm. and it's I, I don't think we'd have it without Ron, it, yeah, not in yeah. this way. Oh, no. Yeah, and and an early another early film in Touchstone, and he was executive producer for it was Never Cry Wolf, that oh, yeah. people loved. I mean, that was a beautiful film. Yeah, I mean, I my visually uh, my personal favorite from Touchstone uh, was was clearly Armageddon, but I think I'm alone <laughs> in that. And that was an attraction too. Hey, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> my favorite attraction at the uh, Walt Disney Studios Park in. In yeah. Disneyland Paris, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, Ron Miller led the company through a time of tumultuous social change in the United States, whilst working to maintain the Disney brand and being innovative. Um, he championed computer animation and effects and initiated talks with George Lucas about bringing attractions based on his films into Disney theme parks. And, you know, I've heard people talk about how when he brought over the Lucasfilm people and the people from the studio, you know, he and Diane hosted them at, the, at their home at, at Silverado um, Vineyards near Yauntville. And they, you know, Diane served lunch and um, and Ron took them on a tour and his jeep of the vineyards and 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 that they initiated the talks that brought you know that brought those attractions into the parks um you know ron was also the primary proponent of creating walt disney home video the disney channel and the construction of the company's first international Disney theme park, um, Tokyo Disneyland. He also acquired a real estate company that helped the company develop land near the Walt Disney World Complex in Lake Buena Vista, Florida, and brought the company closer to an agreement to open a Disney theme park in France, which would open outside Paris in 1992. Mm-hmm. So I think in... in the, his whole legacy so much of this is forgotten oh uh, absolutely or yeah, attributed to other people well, attributed to the folks that came after him michael yes. eisner and yep. he he michael eisner definitely got um credit for much of what i just talked about and, and i can say i'm so personally even, guilty for that i i did not realize until uh between some of the stuff you wrote here and then also doing my own personal research i just don't i don't think he was given due credit for a lot of the stuff he did no i agree absolutely even even a couple of the attractions like splash mountain and all that that opened under michael eisner those were developed during ron miller's tenure Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so um you know um so now, now during Ron's tenure, um, Walt Disney Productions became the target of corporate raiders and hostile takeover attempts. And some influential stakeholders believe this was due to Ron's leadership and criticized his action in fighting off these hostile takeover attempts. The company agreed to fend off a hostile takeover attempt by the corporate raider Saul Steinberg with an extremely expensive buyback of, of Steinberg's stake in the company. And that led 
more than 20 disgruntled stakeholders to sue the company for wasting corporate assets. And Ron Miller defended the board's payments of Mr. Steinberg as as really the only way to get rid of Steinberg and to keep the company intact, because Steinberg would have... Um, would have what he did at the time was he would buy a company and then divest it of its assets, just sell it all off. So he he and and everybody wanted the vault. They wanted the film library because that was the golden goose. So we would have seen the dismantling of the Walt Disney Company or Walt Disney Productions at the time, if if this corporate raid had gone through. The Disney company that we know today would not exist. So, um, you know, and and Ron fought that off. Um, Then during the summer, an activist shareholder, Erwin Jacobs, who appeared poised to launch a takeover of his own, helped to force the company to drop its proposed acquisition of Gibson Greetings, um, the third-ranked company in the greeting card business. And this is all part of Ron's plan to basically take on some debt to make the company less attractive to um, corporate raiders and hostile takeovers. Um, In 1984, fellow Disney family members Roy E. Disney, who of course is the son of Walt Disney's brother Roy, and Stanley Gold and shareholder Sid Bass removed Ron Miller in favor of a trio of non-Disney executives, Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, and Jeffrey Katzenberg. Now, before the board members voted on a proposal to ask Ron to offer his resignation, he reportedly looked at them and angrily asked, Don't you have something to say to me? Aren't you men? And James B. Stewart wrote in his 2005 book, Disney War, that I feel is a must read for anybody interested in Disney history, that that Ron Miller went on to say, I've given my life to this company. I've never worked anywhere else. I think I've taken great strides in leading it as far as it has come. I feel like this is a betrayal. Yeah, I mean, it kind of was. It was. I I believe it was. Yeah, it's um, it's that tough part where you have to draw the line between personal and business. So it mm -hmm. it it is, but it also it it was not the greatest time. So I I I think looking back onto it, it it would be interesting to see what would have happened if a different road was taken. But at the same time, too, we do know. We do know what happened because of the changes that were made. And we can't obviously say that we know what would have happened if it would have went differently. So it's it's very interesting. It is. And, and I shared on a previous episode where we discussed this, um, this era of, of the company that there were uh, business analysts at the time who wrote that Ron Miller's plan was sound. His business plan was sound for the company and that if it had been allowed to go forward, the company would have been fine and they would have weathered the the, because we were going through an oil crisis. I mean, we were going through a a significant recession. You know, these hostile hostile takeovers were – they were happening to all kinds. TWA was going through it. They were happening to all kinds of major companies. 
And we were seeing companies disappear as they were dismantled for their assets. And um, so, you know, so it's interesting to look back and read what was being written at the time, you know, about Ron's actions. But uh, it did not keep him from being removed, though, as, yeah. um, you know, from from the company. Yeah. So at... After his removal as CEO, um, Ron and Diane moved to the Napa Valley, and Ron explained how he and Diane ended up moving to Napa and opening Silverado Vineyards. He said Walt and Lily had a second home in Palm Springs, and when Walt died, the magic of Palm Springs sort of went with him, and so Lily sold the house. Diane felt that her mother should buy somewhere other than Beverly Hills, and Diane had never been to Napa, but she took her mom on a trip up there and all they had to do was drive into the valley, and Diane fell in love with it. They had a real estate broker, and, a, and the real estate broker said, There is a house coming on the market. It's owned by Harry C. of Cease Candy, and it's a beautiful home, very ranchy and all that. So Diane brought me, Diane brought me up there once, and I fell in love with it. And so we bought 70 acres of vineyard with a house that goes back to 1906. We tore most of the vineyards out and planted all Cabernet. And then on the hill, we decided, okay, let's throw a little winery there. Well, it's not a little winery any longer. And no, it's not. And it, it's probably one of the most beautiful wineries in the valley. Um, to go see. I haven't been there, obviously, uh, as we've mm-hmm. mentioned many times, but uh, <laughs> I I have had a lot of Silverado uh, winery wines, mm-hmm. and it is so good. Um, their their is, Chardonnay in winery. particular is, like, mm-hmm. one of my favorites. Um, I, I'm not huge on Chardonnay. Uh, there's only mm-hmm. about two that I'll drink, and and the Silverado one is one of them. Uh, just mm-hmm. so so good. I didn't recognize the um, before. I, n- I never knew about the the connection with C's Candies, and that's kind of I a didn't either. Yeah, that's kind of an inside thing between uh, Michael and I. Um, he knows how much I love C's, and uh, it, multiple times I've I've received a nice package from uh, from uh, Michael. With uh, C's candies and it just it brightens my world every time. <laughs> oh, good! I'm, a sweet I'm glad addict. to hear that. Well, <laughs> now the next time I send you C's candy, you have to pair it with some Silverado wine. Oh. You know, they always say there's certain wines with, with dark chocolate. I guess go well together. I, and I'm, I'm sure it's great. <laughs> Usually, I have it by the glass on Disney property. I've looked at the uh, bottles that at the wine stores around us and i don't always have just uh 35 dollars sitting around to, to to spend on a bottle of wine that i know i'll drink in about 90 minutes give or take but uh i, I drink wine oh, like you're it's worth candy. it i it is you're uh, worth uh, it <laughs> <laughs> now but i i love silverado it is just mm-hmm. uh, you know it's uh, eventually i i know you've talked about it before and we've we've made mentions but Disney family with wineries, you can't really go wrong on any of them. Um, but mm-hmm. like going with Fest Parkers, that's a little bit more on the moderate side uh, in terms of budget. Uh, you know, Lasseter, you can feel about him however you want. That was definitely on the higher end. Uh, Silverado had the ability to fall right in the middle and 
Silverado is so, so solid all the way. On our Someday when we pull an episode from the archives, we have to pull out the show I did on the Disney family of wines. Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. a... And, um, God, that's been years. I think four-ish around that. It's been when a you while, did that yeah. one, yeah. I, I remember it distinctly, though. Yeah. yeah, and Ron and Diane championed environmental efforts in winemaking, including helping to restore local riverbanks and creek beds and adopting solar power and hybrid engine technology in the wine industry. And some of that is now just standard yeah. um, among the wineries. You know, now concerned about the number of false stories of Walt being written, Diane Disney Miller decided to tell Walt's story herself and ultimately opened the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco's Presidio on October 2009. Uh, Diane opened it in San Francisco because she wanted to be a part of the museum and live in close proximity to it. Um, because besides their home in the Napa Valley, Ron and Diane had a home on Russian Hill in San Francisco. Now, after Diane's passing, Ron Miller served as president of the board of directors for the museum. And Ron also produced the documentary film Walt, The Man Behind the Myth in 2001, which is probably, I think, the best documentary film on Walt. And, and it's available. The, uh, the um, museum a year or so ago recently um, cleaned it up, and it's on, I think... Um, it's on DVD and Blu-ray now. You can get it from them. I think I'm, I'm sure yeah. you can probably get it on Amazon. I'm pretty sure now, this is the one that's on Netflix too. I could be completely wrong. It, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It does play on Netflix. Yeah, and it's it's excellent. I'm yeah. glad that it's fully available now. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Carol and I, because we've been members of the museum since before it opened, we've been fortunate enough to get to know um, members of the Disney family. Now, it's not like they're inviting us over for tea or anything like that, but uh, but we're on you know we're on friendly terms with them, and we we had a number of conversations with both Diane and Ron. I've even like during Fleet Week once I sat at the same table with Diane. We ate lunch and chatted as we watched the planes in the sky and stuff because they both were very friendly very warm very outgoing but they didn't wouldn't sign autographs generally um maybe to children they would because and people saw that as being standoffish they misinterpreted it it was because they didn't want to take away the focus of the museum and its mission which was to tell walt's story they didn't want to become the story themselves. But th- there were some things that were really strong in our memories about Ron and and Diane. And one of our first times we really met them and close up was, this was early on in, in there was a presentation at what is now the, the um, Diane Disney Miller Exhibition Hall. They had originally used the hall for a number of events, including large talks, and um, presentations. And we were at one that I think it was for one of the anniversaries of Disneyland. It was like a two-day event. And and so we were all there, and Carol had to use the restroom, and it meant walking from our seat all the way to the front and out. And this was 
early in her diagnosis of cardiopulmonary hypertension. So she was on oxygen and all that. And walking was a bit of a chore for her. So as she came back in, she had to pass the Disney family, who was all in the front row. And Ron jumped up and gave her his seat. And she said, oh, no, no, no. She says, I, you know, I have a seat. And he said, no, you sit right here. And he explained to her, you know, I also, I'm on oxygen too. I have to sleep at night with oxygen, especially when I go to, to Denver to ski and all that and he owned a cattle ranch also in Colorado and um, and and we just were so touched by that 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 was so kind of so Carol sat with the family and they were all very wow. nice and warm yeah. and then when I came around to um, pick up Carol uh, Diane um, Diane saw me going to get her and 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 Carol was coming down off the porch Diane escorted Carol and chatted with her the whole way and brought her to the car. And we were, and, and, and Carol's telling her what a special place we thought the museum was yeah. and for us. And and Diane said, you know, that makes me so happy because we, we created this museum for you to be a special place. And then she gave Carol like a big hug, <laughs> you know, and, and it, it was just so, just so sweet. Yeah, precious. And, you know, yeah. the, yeah, and there there was another time I remember I was doing research for an episode I was doing on the Walt Disney Studio in World War II, and David Leschak is a Disney historian and author, and he's been on the Disneyland show and this show a couple of times, and I was looking at the ex- exhibit that the museum has on World War II, and a lot of what's in that collection is on loan from David Leschak's personal collection. So I'm looking at it and taking notes and things like that, and um, and suddenly someone starts talking to me, and the museum was not full that day, and it's Ron Miller, <laughs> and he he starts telling me about the things in in the exhibit and what they had to do to get some of them. Well, one of the items in the exhibit is that for the for the men that were at home um, working for the military, but they were working, you know, as animators and artists for the war effort, they were ri- they were drawing and writing things for the people who worked for the studios who were serving overseas, and they drew pinups, and they were they were they were racy. And they and they they remind me very much of the artwork from the pastoral symphony scene in Fantasia, you know that you know that kind sort of of nudity. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. they had, but but a little more, um, a little more spot on, but still discreet. And 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 they, there's an example of one of those on display. And Ron said to me, "I had to fight with the board." to get them to put that up in the exhibit. <laughs> and then he just sort of chuckled. <laughs> and then we, we talked about it. I just, thought that, I just thought that was just funny, just funny to share. And, and you could tell he was just so pleased that, that the exhibit could be complete with that one item. I felt like it was yeah. sort of a private joke of his. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I see and that. And then... Yeah. Um, yeah, and then and then another really sweet moment we had, and this is where I I impressed my um, colleagues at the Diz because it was the 60th anniversary of the the Dis- of Disneyland, and 
some of my colleagues and I, from when I was on the old um, Dis Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, we we were all meeting up. And I was also with my family and I had my granddaughter with me, who is about, oh, I don't know, five, six at the time. And we um, we had, so we had a large table to plaza in for breakfast. We were seated right next to the Disney Miller family. And when they saw us seated, they came over to say hello. This blew away Mary Jo and everybody else, that the Disneys were coming over to say hello and talk to us and knew our names. And Rhonda was sitting very privately eating his breakfast. And I asked if I could um, introduce our granddaughter to him. And, and they said, yes, because we trust you. And I, that meant a lot to me, first of all, that they, that, oh, you know, absolutely, yeah. his children would say that. And then I walked over, I explained to Lexi as we went up what Ron Miller had done. And, and I s- explained in front of Ron, you know, how he made movies for Walt and television shows and he helped Walt build Disneyland and, and he ran the company for Walt after he passed away. And, Ron was just so charming and delightful with her. You could tell how much he loved children. And of course, he was the father of seven. And um, so, and they had such a sweet little conversation. And and we were, um, he allowed us to take a photo with him. And and I, I shared that with you, Craig, in case we want to post that. And yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and then um, it was just, it was very sweet. And so. Now, she's five or six, and at the end of the day, now we've had this whole full day, and we're walking back to the Grand Californian, we're staying in the DVC suite, and, you know, this was a day full of festivities and going on attractions, and she was tall enough to go on some of the big ones now, and all that, and as I walked back, I said, okay, when Disneyland now, I said, you were here on the 60th anniversary of Disneyland, when you tell your children when you take your children on the 100th anniversary of Disneyland, that you were here for the 60th, what are you going to tell them that you remembered? And she said that I met the man who helped Walt Disney make Disneyland. And I thought, okay, you know what, for a six-year-old, after a whole big day at, at basically what was a party, that she remembers meeting Rod Miller. I thought, okay, that, that's impressive. <laughs> that that was the highlight of her day was meeting him. So um, that made me good. And we related that story to him and, and to um, his daughters. Oh, and that that just, you know... That's so that, sweet. That just made yeah. his heart feel good. I can imagine. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. and, and it, was, it, it was so neat to hear, like I mentioned before, when people would come who, who worked directly with or for Ron, he would make a point of being there at the talks. And and so would Diane when she was still alive, and so would some of the children, like uh, especially Joanna um, Miller would Di- uh, Disney Miller would be there, and um, and sometimes Jennifer, and um, it was always so cool when you would you would then hear Ron just pipe up from the back with a, a memory or a story or a funny little joke or a quip or an anecdote or something, but without fail. Everybody who worked for Ron, and, and they, they didn't just say this when he was there, they would say this when he wasn't there as well. Just they would speak of the fondness they had for him and of the admiration they had for him. And they would always give him the credit that he deserved that unfortunately history has not 
fully given him credit for that that I hope on this show we we are you know attempting to give him credit for yeah so um you know so I, I just feel very special that I could meet him and you know like Diane you know he was very quiet and humble at at the museum he never want like we we never had a day where we spoke about his accomplishments at the museum like a ron miller day yeah or something which i always hoped we would that just wasn't his way um you know you know even though he's been criticized for his leadership he i think he ran the studio at such difficult times Uh, we were going through social and and moral upheavals you know the whole concept of family family friendly entertainment was sort of falling by the wayside and he was hanging on to that so that we we would still have that anchor you know and um you know and and he was trying to be innovative and and he didn't always have the cooperation of of others in the company to be innovative and and we'll we'll get into that in a bit when we we talk more about his legacy so um but but anyway so those are those are some of my my personal memories Mm -hmm. of ron just a few but but he is survived by his children um christopher christopher miller joanna miller tamara diane miller jennifer goff walter elias disney miller um, Ron Miller, uh, Ronald Miller, and Patrick Miller, and also by thirteen grandchildren and four great grandchildren. So, you know, his all of the, there's his greatest legacy right there. All of that. Agree. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And donations may be made to the memorial fund that the Walt Disney Family Museum has established in honor of Ron and Diane Disney Miller. Donations will support the museum's ongoing education efforts about which. Ron was passionate. Ron believed the future of the museum is education. Um, donations and cards can also be sent to the family through the Walt Disney Family Museum Attention Director's Office at 104 Montgomery Street, San Francisco, California, 94129. Um, services will be private, and the museum has not yet planned a public commemoration of Ron. They do have a small a memorial set up right now um, on either side of the photos in the main lobby that uh, Norman Rockwell did of of Diane and Sharon and also um, it, where, where there's his official photo is displayed along with some flowers um, when there is a public commemoration uh, we will share that information with you all of us at the Dis Unplugged sent our best wishes and prayers to the Disney Miller family. We hope they are comforted in the knowledge that their father's accomplishments brought joy to millions of people and will continue to do so for generations to come. Well, now it is time to switch gears and go into this day in Disney history. And this is the week of February 17th. So, so Craig, if you're, if you're over your um, chocolate high from um, Valentine's Day... I'm never over. Um, <laughs> no. Every day's chocolate day. So, um, anyway, so, anyway, so let's start out with uh, February 17th. 
On February 17th, 1963, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color airs part one of Banner in the Sky. This is a retitled and re-edited television presentation of which 1959 Disney feature film? I only know this because I am like a thousand percent obsessed with this movie. Uh, It was... uh, in the very first Treasures from the Disney Vault round that they did back in, I want to say that was December 2014 now. It was one of the the movies that they showed as well as a, uh, as well as a behind-the-scenes look at how it was filmed. And that's uh, Third Man on the Mountain. It is. And that is, I share your admiration of this film. This is an amazing <laughs> film. When you... Look, when you learn about all the behind the scenes of what went into making this film, it is amazing. I'm amazed no one was killed in the making of this film. They they should have been. Um, And as a Disney fan's perspective, I understand how expensive it is to make uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, but there are two situations, in my opinion, I'll, I'll actually say three where I believe there should have been a Blu-ray made of the movie plus the the corresponding Disney uh, presentation of the behind-the-scenes filming of it. Uh, the first okay. is obviously this one, it, 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 especially going into how they filmed the movie. They filmed it on a mountain. I mean, just mm-hmm. literally insane. Uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea plus the the... Walt Disney presents they did on that as well, and then mm-hmm. um, and then Darby O'Gill and the Little People and yes, the yes. the one that and that was available the Darby O'Gill Walt Disney presents uh, Wonderful World of Color all that that one was available on I think Walt Disney Behind the Scenes um, the the box set I, I can't remember which one exactly it was a bonus feature on one of them but uh, God it's Third Man on the Mountain is great. It's such a good movie. Mm-hmm. And I was at the Walt Disney Family Museum talks on the making of uh, Third Man on the Mountain and Darby O'Gill and the Little People. It's stunning. Uh, ju- just the cinematography and, and uh, the special effects they had to do. They oh, yeah. didn't have computers in those days. And and the camera work they had to do to create the illusions All perspective. of humans yeah. with... Um, with the little people, the, the leprechauns, astonishing, so creative, and Still Third Man used on the to Mountain. This day. Um, dear Lord, I, yeah. you know, if you watch the Lord of the Rings movies, the same techniques mm-hmm. were used for that. That's how. Yeah. That's how important it was. Yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, yeah, great film. If you've not seen Third Man on the Mountain, definitely worth watching. And this is a film that holds up um, through time. Agreed. So, so yeah. even youngsters today, you are going to find this film exciting. So, okay, okay February eighteenth, Walt Disney's first People and Places film is released on February eighteenth, nineteen fifty-eight. What is the name of the film? Oh, um, I don't know that. The only two I know is Disneyland USA, and then there's one other one that I have watched on YouTube before, but I don't. It's one of those series I want to know more about. I just don't. So I I, I know yeah, Disneyland wasn't the first. Yeah. yeah. These don't get their due. 
I really wish these would be released as a set. Because the cinematography um, was beautiful. It was. Yeah. And, you know, it took you to places in the world at a time people didn't didn't go to, you know, didn't know much about. It was the Alaskan Eskimo. It was a short okay. documentary um, shot by the team of Alfred and Emma Millat. And it will win an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject. Okay. Yeah, I just haven't okay. never seen it before. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if I have, to be honest with you. So, um, anyway, February 19th, a Mickey Mouse animated short was released on February 19th, 1948. It was originally planned to be part of the Three Caballeros and was conceived from the South America Disney Good Neighbor trip. What is the name of this Mickey Mouse short? I... I honestly don't have a clue. Yeah, I, I have no Pluto idea. Pluto and the Armadillo. Pluto and the Armadillo, directed by Clyde Geronimi. And it's a short about Mickey's pal Pluto when he attempts to defend an armadillo whilst on a South American trip. And, of course, mayhem ensues. That's not even, it's not even slightly dawning on me right now. Mm-hmm. Not even the armadillo's bit. not too keen <laughs> in the beginning <laughs> on um, being Pluto's pal. I can I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, on uh, February twentieth, on February twentieth, two thousand and two, it is reported that a new tombstone has been placed in the graveyard entrance to the Magic Kingdom's haunted mansion at Walt Disney World. To whom is the tombstone dedicated? Oh, um, gosh, you're even picking one on my neighborhood. I should know this. I know. I would, and, and even in your era here. <laughs> but I don't. I don't think I know, at least. Yeah. Dear sweet Leota, beloved uh, by all, in regions beyond now, but having a ball. Okay, yeah, I would. I thought that's been around for a lot longer than 2002. No. That shows how far no, my mind I is uh, going. I'm not going to give it away, but, you know, it It has it, it had an effect very different from any other tombstones. I remember when that one was installed. Yeah, no, I, it, I just can't. I can't picture a time where it wasn't there. And that really hurts my brain. <laughs> believe it like i can remember the queue before it was changed a hundred percent i can't remember before oh, the, me too this tombstone was there at all and that really worries me so we'll See, deal with I that did just week. because that tombstone so that tombstone's so dominant so that's oh yeah, I yeah i mean right so. before you go in the yeah okay february 21st what debuted at the Disney MGM Studios on February 21st, 1967? I'm sorry, 1997. I don't know what I okay, was going to say. Yeah, right. I was going to say, like, um, nothing. <laughs> uh, I know, really. <laughs> An alligator. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, no, 1997. Sorry. Huh. Um,. I'm trying to think about the time period. Uh, was it was this maybe somewhere around when Beauty and the Beast was finally brought there? 
No, but but there is a film connection. Mm. Um, I'm I'm really stumbling on this one. Uh, this was '97 was during the gray area. There was a four year period from '96 to. 2000 where my family didn't travel so a lot of stuff that happened during that period is like doesn't really resonate with me because four years is a lot of not traveling to disney so i can't think of what else really happened during that time period well the very first star wars star wars weekend debuted so um they will be gone for the next five consecutive weekends and Walt Disney World did stage two Star Wars events, um, you know, in 1997 and 1980. And although it was a success in 97, um, they really don't get revved up again until okay. the year 2000. Okay. See, I wasn't even thinking in that that sense. That's my fault, though. Not yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You asked a perfectly legit question. Thank you. Okay, February 22nd. On February 22nd, 2001, a bird's nest catches fire atop which Walt Disney World attraction, forcing it to temporarily close and guests evacuated? I know this one. I just found this amusing. I I only know this one because I just recently read it, too. Um, It's uh, the People Mover. Yeah, Tomorrowland Transit Authority. No one was injured. I, I don't know if that includes the birds. um, yeah i just recently saw that i had never known that before that was like about a week ago when i saw that one pop up yeah Yeah, isn't that funny it's hilarious (laughs) (laughs) okay february 23rd our final one um radio city music hall in new york city debuts a mickey mouse cartoon short on february 23rd 1935 it was the first mickey mouse cartoon to be shown in radio city music hall which cartoon was it I know this one because it sits in mm-hmm. front of me every single day I'm at my desk. I'm pretty sure you have the exact same ornament that <laughs> That's it. And you know that. It's uh the band concert. That's right. Absolutely yep. the band concert. Okay. One of my favorite decorations. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's also the first official Mickey cartoon in Technicolor, and it features the animation of such famous names in Disney history, such as Les Clark, Jack Kinney, Wolfgang Reitherman, and Dick Humor. And Humor will later state that the band concert is the most perfect animated short ever made. It's up there. I don't know if I'd call it the most perfect, yeah. but it is. It's close. It's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it, oh, me too. Yeah, Such five. Donald Duck. And how hard does he keep finding those flutes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <I have no idea. laughs> so, anyway. Well, you did you did very well with that. Not too bad. There were a lot of tough ones on that. So I'm I'm glad you finally made it difficult for me. You know, Craig, Michael Eisner is credited, as we mentioned before, for the expansion of the theme parks and studio output. But And Ron was criticized that that he wasn't more aggressive in expansion. But I, and this is just me speculating, but I, I'm always wondered if Ron was trying to stay true 
to Walt and Roy's desire to keep the parks affordable for families. Um, you know, uh, you know, Ron yeah. may not have, um, you know, added, you know, hotels and motels and all that at Walt Disney's uh, at Walt Disney World out of Roy's stated desire for the company to be a, a good neighbor with the uh, or- Orlando hotels, uh, motor inns, and restaurants. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, well, let's let's be real. It's Michael Eisner is a, a significant change where it became it, it became more than just just what it was. I mean, uh, on the Walt Disney World edition, Pete says over and over again, Disney, even back to the days of Walt Disney, it, it was a business, um, it, it, a family business and one that kept everyone in mind, but still a business. Uh, I feel like Ron did hold on to those ideals that Walt and and his brother held on before. And Michael Eisner is the first time where we're really looking at it from a different a different lens. So I mm-hmm. I, I'm right there too. It's it is definitely the shift in an era away from mm-hmm. away from being about family first almost in a way and profit first almost to a point. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, he Ron worked to keep the company's goal of providing family friendly friendly entertainment during a time of social upheaval in our country. You know, and as we mentioned, you know, Ron said Walt was finding Walt was finding it frustrating to find material in you know towards the end of his life for films and television series. Um, you know, Ron worked to innovate, but he was frequently blocked uh, in a. At an event I was at years ago at the Walt Disney Family Museum, I was at a table where I, Carol and I happened to be seated with the Disney Miller family. And I don't want to go into too much detail because we were chatting and this, we, we were just chatting as friends and it, it wasn't a conversation that they would ever expect to be um, broadcast. But we did talk about, you know, Ron and his legacy and his experience at the studio and the, his frustration at he was trying to innovate and he was frequently blocked. And what I'm going to share now it, it has been documented in biographies and studio histories is that Card Walker was definitely a what would Walt do man. And when Ron tried to break out of that card walker blocked him from it a lot uh, frequently and and some of the and there were t- and some of the things that ron got in motion he just decided to do it no matter what the board or card was saying for instance uh, getting the the rights to the film rights for the, the book that would ultimately become who framed roger rabbit he was told not to do that and he did it anyway um reaching out to george lucas the, the, not everyone in the company was for that. Ron did it anyway because he knew that was the direction of attractions they had to go in, and and um, so you know, I like you said earlier, Craig. We, we'll never know what the company could have been had Ron been allowed to move forward with his innovations and his future plans. So. Um, you know, so I, I, for me, I think his legacy, really, like I mentioned earlier, you know, his, um, f- 
is his family and, you know, really holding the studio together at a critical moment in its history. Yeah. You know, he produced Agreed. classic films that are still beloved. You know, there's the Silverado Winery. Uh, I know the Walt Disney Family Museum and its educational program and, and his philanthropic work that he did for the arts. So, yeah, his, so for his you, legacy is not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, um, Ron rarely gave interviews and talked about his accomplishments. So it was always a treat, you know, when he shared his personal memories, you know, from the back road during a talk at the Walt Disney Family Museum. You know, like I keep saying, he was just a very humble man. And in his interview with the Knob Hill Gazette, he talked about how football influenced his professional career. And and it's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like an epitaph in a way. He, and he said, I think the most valuable thing I learned was that you have to have help in every endeavor. You're not going to do it alone. You're going to do it as a group. That's what I learned from football. Football was a team sport, and I carried that on to the studio, just like Walt. When Walt was on a project, he didn't do it alone. He did it with a lot of people. The difference between Walt and me is he contributed a hell of a lot. I don't know if I contributed anything like that. Well, Ron, you contributed a lot, and we are the better for it. And if you would like to know more about Ron Miller, I highly recommend a couple of good interviews. Uh, the interview with Ron Miller, um, you know, Life in the Magic Kingdom by Janet Riley for the Knob Hill Gazette, and Walt's People, Volume 6, an interview with Ron Miller by Richard Hubler, um, edited by um, Didi Urgez. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World edition, uh, Wednesdays on the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, Thursdays on the Universal edition, and then always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Telecluster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me on Craig, me and Craig on Twitter. That means something very different, the first thing I said, at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.